Good morning. My name is Carrie Brown. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of James. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 from the New International Version. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Marisa. Thank you, Carrie. It's my great pleasure and privilege to introduce the speaker for this morning. Uh, his name is Jerry Stritsky, and uh, he comes to us by way of Aria. He's the CEO there. And uh, he's been at our church, I think, for about a year and a half or so. And uh, I, me- I remember meeting him in the back there uh, after I had preached. I was standing there. And we started talking about some books that we both had read. And uh, asked him out for coffee. And then uh, I asked him if he would be one of my uh, coaches. And he's been an organizational uh, mentor, coach to me over the last year or so. And he's had a tremendous uh, impact uh, on me and the way I think about organizations and business. And each meeting I'd come with one question that I had about how to improve as a leader uh, for this church, and he would just fill my mind with uh, helpful insights and uh, sort of truths that have been tested um, and proven true. So that was really helpful for me. I appreciate his time, and I wanted an opportunity for him to be able to share with you all some of the things that uh, have been so helpful to me. So I want to invite Jerry to come on up and uh, share God's word and his life story with us. I said in the first service that one of the uh, pieces of advice I gave Peter was to get a really bad speaker in here. Because they'll, they'll really appreciate him after that. You know, that contrast is important. Then he started asking me if I'd be interested to speak. And I'm not sure what he meant by that. The, uh, you know, the other thing this morning, I got here and I put this mic on and there's no on-off switch. They just, you know, just, it's kind of those trust me things. What I'm really worried about is the singing part of this service. I, God forbid the mic is on. You guys will have a bad experience. Um, there's a reason I sit in the front row. There's no one in front of me to turn around and look at me when I sing. When Peter first approached me about the idea of speaking on a Sunday morning, uh, and I'm using the word speaking on Sunday morning on purpose, uh, the idea of preaching or giving a sermon terrifies me. Um, I went immediately to a place that I'm not qualified. Not necessarily for reasons you might expect, you know, kind of the obvious, I'm not called to be a preacher, I'm not seminary trained, I'm not a professional. Those are probably all valid. My reasons were deeper. Um, I'm deeply aware of the fact that as I do life, I fall short of my own expectations, let alone those of a righteous God. Um, if I give homage to uh, the Baptist church that I attended as a young man, I would say I'm a sinner. Uh, and that's, uh, that's a, and as I've gotten older, I've become more aware of that. Um, moreover, I'm going through this uh, interesting season of life. In one respect, I'm in the midst of a dream job. 
Uh, I have the opportunity to combine uh, my vocation with my passion for the outdoors and work with uh, an amazing group of people and an amazing company here in Seattle at REI. Uh, But at the same time, I'm struggling with uh, the death of my father. Uh, Almost a year ago today, I suffered a heart attack at the age of 54. I'm fine. I did Rainier twice this summer, and uh, to my wife's total dismay. Um, the, uh, but it's, uh, it's created a time in life where I'm, I'm struggling with some issues that I haven't struggled with before, and uh, in the midst of that struggle, feels a bit awkward to stand in front of the body of Christ and, and speak. The, uh, I also figured out that uh, as I've become more convinced that I, I'm not qualified to speak, I also had the realization I'm actually suspicious of anybody that thinks they are qualified to speak, and, um, the, except for Peter. Um, the, uh, when you get right down to it, though, um, and this is just a, a part of my theology and my belief structure, the hour and a half that we're here on Sunday morning together is literally 1% of the total hours that we'll experience in a week. And I think all of us, when we walk out of this room, um, are speaking to the body of Christ. Um, we're present. We're watched. Uh, we interact with one another, with others that know that we profess to be Christians, Uh, So at some point, um, I need to uh, get comfortable with the idea of staying up in this somewhat formal environment uh, and speaking. I have to say, it feels a little less formal today looking at a sea of jerseys. Um, And uh, my wife and son laid out for me a bunch of Seahawks apparel last night and threatened me if I didn't wear it that uh, they would be booing me from the audience. What I, I think when you speak every, you know, at most four or five years from the pulpit, it's tempting to speak from where you are in your journey. And, and I'm going to do that a bit this morning, um, talking about uh, kind of where I am in my journey and, and what's influenced my journey um, as a Christian, as an individual. And I'm going to address the idea of becoming and specifically uh, ask the question, who are you becoming? Uh, and it's a very individual question. For those of in the room that really like short, short sermons, uh, that was it. Who are you becoming? The, uh, if I move that into a statement uh, and a more declarative position, I believe we are all in the process of becoming. I don't think we all manage it. I don't think we're all deliberate about it. But you are in the process of becoming something. It's not about who you were. And once you think about it a minute, you know, we just did introductions. And when you meet people, whether it's on the street or in the church, um, how often do you hear about what somebody was? It's not about what you are. It's not what you were. It's not what you are. It is what you are becoming. Um, I actually believe it is the most important question. It's not what we tend to focus on. Um, I can't affect what I was. What I am, it is a reality today. What I'm becoming is within my control. The, uh, I believe the vast majority of people never ask or consider um, the idea of what am I becoming. I think sometimes we live life uh, on cruise control. We have routines. Uh, we that routine occupies our life. Uh, we do it, and we do it again the following day, the following week. If you have children, uh, you live a life ruled by the tyranny of the urgent. Um, you know, there's just that constant pressure, that next thing, that next challenge that you have to step up to. And I do believe that for some people, uh, they see themselves as have arrived. Their life is done. 
Um, I had the opportunity to meet uh, John Glenn and spend a half a day with him when he was 85. He's currently 93. And when I sat with him, and I'm not going to assume everybody in the room knows who John Glenn is. Um, he was a test pilot, uh, one of the first test pilots uh, as the NASA was formed. Uh, the first American to uh, orbit Earth. Um, and he went back into space when he was 77. Uh, so when I sat with him in Ohio when, and when he was 85 and spent half a day with him, amazingly sharp, amazingly present, uh, very articulate guy. Uh, and he looked good. And, um, and so I just, I said, what, what do you do? How do you do that? You know, what's your life like? And he described for me, uh, and was very quick to do it. He's, he's very intentional about how he lives his life, how he's up at six in the morning. Um, and that he has a quick bite and he spends two hours with a personal trainer and, you know, a very deliberate about the physical part of his life, uh, showers, cleans, eats a little more breakfast. And then he spends the next three hours, um, working and he has projects. He's literally being paid to do by NASA, by universities. He's writing papers. He's taking positions on uh, legislative and national and world issues. And he's literally working and delivering content at the age of 85. Takes another break, eat lunch, takes a nap, which I really love to put in the middle of my day. Um, And then from that nap, he then steps up and he really starts to consume information about uh, what's going on in the world, what's going on in the vocations that he's interested in, what are the advances in science and how does that impact the world? And for literally a period of hours is, is taking information in. And then he, on the back of that, he puts a, a reach out and connect where he makes phone calls, connects to friends, maintains relationships, um, and literally um, you know, kind of has that social aspect of connecting with people, followed by a meal, uh, followed with a little bit of downtime, and then to bed early and doing uh, that kind of same discipline. He also travels. Um, it's about 20% of his time is spent on the road, speaking, interacting with people, talking to people. Um, and as I thought about uh, his life and as I uh, engaged with him, how did, how did you get there? Did you always do that? When did you arrive at that? He was very deliberate as he um, started stepping out of Congress and stepping into a more of retirement mode about who he wanted to be, how he wanted to be uh, physically, how he wanted to be mentally, how he wanted to be from a relationship standpoint. And I have to say that I was phenomenally impressed by that. This question of who you want to be, I think, is more obvious at certain life stages. Uh, I think it starts to come on the radar screen when you're in high school. And suddenly you realize that you have the ability to determine um, how you are perceived, um, how you show up, how people what do you choose to devote yourself? What is important? Uh, are you going to stand for something? What do you do when peer pressure comes into play? Um, college, I think, is a particularly poignant time. Um, I read a stat, um, and Peter could probably give us a more accurate one, that um, a huge percentage of decisions to follow Christ are made in that college timeline. Um, and I think college is a classic time of becoming but I do think that when you approach that college time frame and having had kids go through that, having worked with a lot of kids in that space, I actually think they perceive it as a time of independence, of breaking free, which is a little less profound view than asking the question, who am I to become? 
and then being deliberate about who they become rather than exercising their independence. But it doesn't stop there. Whether you're a young professional, whether you're a new spouse, whether you're a parent, um, what kind of a son or daughter are you as your uh, parents grow older, um, what kind of a grandfather are you, uh, what happens when you uh, hit your prime, what happens when you step away from um, that work life and into a different stage. These stages of life present discrete, obvious questions about who are you becoming. But I think it's broader than that. And if you think about when you meet people and they, and they want to get to know you, what do you share with them? Often it's about titles. It's about your work. It's about, it may be physical attributes. I'm a marathon runner. Or I do this. I have this passion. These things interest me. Uh, material things. It may be cognitive. It may be about education, expertise, your body of knowledge or your body of experiences. I actually think who we are extends maybe even a more profound way into the areas that we don't talk about as much. Um, Social. Who are our families? What's our relationship in the family? Who are our friends? What kind of a friend are we? What kind of a boss or coworker are you? Um, Do you interact with your neighbors? Um, That kind of social aspect of our lives. Emotionally, are you optimistic? Are you depressed? Are you an introvert, happy? Uh, are you struggling? And then spiritually, are you committed? Are you casual? Are you an unbeliever? Do you kind of pretend that it, uh, it's there, but it's uh, on the side? All of these aspects are a reflection of who are you. And I believe as a, as a people and as individuals, we're more deliberate about some of the more obvious ones. And we don't think about or choose to ignore maybe some of the more important ones. Often, if you think about where do I experience pain, it's in the areas that we don't talk about as much. I think it's important to give you some context. I'm going to talk a little bit about my journey. Um, I would characterize my life story as unexpected. The, uh, I want to focus on two parts of it. Um, one, doing life, and two, the spiritual journey. I actually see them as incredibly integrated and affecting one another, but I think so often it's tempting for people uh, that we interact with and even the church to really think about them separately. I started uh, as a pretty awful high school student. Um, I think the highest grade I ever had in English was a C. I hope there's no English teachers here. Um, the, uh, I knew what a D looked like on a report card. I could actually tell you how to take carbon paper and turn a D into a B so you didn't get in trouble when you got home. Um, I was on a first name basis with the principal and it wasn't because we were buddies. Um, and I lived at that point in life when they had a board and used it. Um, the, uh, it was a matter of pride for me that I turned a B in physics to an A by agreeing to take three licks to get some points put back on my score in physics so I could get that A. That was after I had actually finished my last day of school as a senior in high school. So uh, for those parents that have a kid that you're looking at and say, I don't think your grades are good enough to get in Harvard, um, you, there's hope. Um, college for me was a... Uh, point where I kind of confronted this idea of becoming. And uh, I can't tell you why, but as I moved from high school to college, I made a deliberate decision to be somebody else and to uh, show up very differently. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence. As I moved into college, I started a spiritual journey as well. Uh, As a freshman, I started attending church, really digging into the idea of 
uh, what did this stuff about Christianity and church really mean? And then as a sophomore, 19 years old, um, gave my life to Christ and was baptized. The, uh, as I stepped into college, I majored in biochemistry. My first year, I had a 3.9, uh, which is kind of a... I actually made a B in English, um, the only B I made that year. The, um, and um, was a very deliberate act on my part. As I stepped into that second year, I, I decided to push even further. And for the first time in my life, I ran for a student government office uh, I joined a group of men uh, in a living arrangement. It was a fraternity, but not like the kind of fraternity you might think. It was a good fraternity. Uh, at least I tried to explain it to my parents. Um, my GPA dropped to 3.6, and my father's a German farmer. Um, work was really at the height of values and priorities. Uh, strong disciplinarian uh, asked to meet with me, uh, and it was pretty formal. Uh, we did have a meeting. Um, at December, in the middle of my sophomore year, um, and uh, sat me down and said, you need to drop the fraternity. I want you to withdraw from the student government and focus on your grades. And, uh, and I'll get to the Christian part of that in a, in a second. And so I told Dad, Dad I says, I'm not going to do those things. I'm at a point where I need to make my own decisions. And he says, well, I'm paying for your books and tuition and room and board. I said, Dad, it's your money. So um, to my surprise, uh, he cut me off. Um, and that was the last time I saw any financial support uh, from my family. And uh, I unfortunately had a little bit of that German in me as well. We didn't speak for the next seven years. Um, I would tell you that uh, the other factor in there was uh, my walk. So as I became a Christian, uh, became baptized, I started asking questions. And I, I know that at 19, I didn't ask them in a very sensitive way or a very appropriate way. But I started asking questions of my family about what did we believe? Why had I never seen them pray? Uh, were they Christians? Uh, and started pushing on that subject. Uh, and that was the other point of tension in my relationship with my family at the time. As I went through that um, crisis, because that was the only way that I could uh, characterize it at the time, I never lost conviction of who I wanted to be, uh, that I wanted and believed it was important for me to do these things that I had stepped off on, whether it was a walk uh, with Christ or whether it was uh, pursuing um, a position of leadership in a government, student government or um, developing a, a network of, of relationships in, in a university context. Um, I realized there was a cost associated with those decisions, and I was tested and um, I, you know, I, when I speak to students today, I tell them I was a pioneer. I uh, had a lot of student debt before it was popular. And um, the, uh, yeah, and at the time, and this is really scary, this is when uh, car, yeah, it was double digit inflation, double digit unemployment rates. And my interest rate on my student loan that I was so pleased to get was 9%. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Uh, if only I knew. Um, so I had this 9% interest rate on my student loans. The, um, what I would, um, from college, um, I uh, wasn't, didn't have a lot of options coming out of school. I applied for every job I could. I put an application in. Um, I forgot to say this first service, grad school, seminary, every job I could, and the law school. Um, I didn't know what I was going to get done. The uh, Graduate thing uh, just kind of fizzled out. Seminary sent me an immediate no. I'm pretty sure they checked references. 
which was a mistake. Um, and uh, in law school, I got in. And ironically, I had never practiced. I didn't knew nothing about the law. I had never met a lawyer, never been in a lawyer's office, never been into a courtroom or a courthouse. Thankfully, it just meant I hadn't got caught. Um, and, uh, but that's what I did. I went to law school. Uh, Edith and I were married that summer. Um, I had just turned 22. She had just turned 20. Uh, and off we went to law school. Great experience. Uh, I ended up practicing law for eight years. Had a very successful law practice. At 28, I was a partner. Tried 60 jury trials. Um, and during that time in our lives, we got really involved with a, with a young couple's um, Sunday school and small group. And I became convicted, and I actually was in a men's group. I mean, we did Bible studies out the wazoo. Um, it was actually just a way to have somebody take care of our kids while we had time to loan. It was pretty awesome. Um, but I became convicted that despite my success in the practice of law, uh, both financially and um, from a status, a partner at early age, that I was supposed to do something else with my life. Um, so I, I know my wife was thrilled when I came home. We just moved into a new home. We had just had our third child. Uh, and I announced that I had figured out that I could quit my job as a lawyer and go to work for a guy in church that had a consulting company. Uh, there was an 80% pay cut, but I was really excited about the opportunity. And uh, the, uh, for some reason, she agreed to that ridiculous plan. And uh, off we went. I spent the next six years consulting, leaving my home on Monday morning, coming back on Thursday night, working on projects all over the United States for different companies. Um, Along the way, I met a guy named Les Wexner in Columbus, Ohio, that was really the father of specialty retailing. And at one point, he really founded um, uh, Limited Express, Lerner, Lane Bryan, Abercrombie & Fitch, Victoria's Secret, Bath & Body Works, uh, White Barn Candle, Cacique, and I'm probably leaving some out. There were 13 different companies that he had founded, created, owned at the time, and was operating. If you walked down the mall, you were basically walking past his portfolio of stores. And um, he uh, was after me to go to work for him, and I made a deal with him. I'd only done lawyering and consulting. I said, I wanted to lead something. I want to have like people that report to me and a P&L. Little did I know, and this is... Um, uh, this idea of becoming, this was a formative event for me. Six months after I went to work for them, six to nine months, he came, pulled me into his office. We talked for an hour, and he offered me the job of CEO of a company called Mast Industries. It was our global sourcing arm. It's a billion-dollar company, offices in 14 countries around the world, 1,000 employees. Um, and I looked at him, and I said, you know, and I have, a, I have a mouth that is not always under control. I say things, and then it's like, ooh, I wish I hadn't said that. Um, so he offers me this job, and I said, Les, you do realize I'm not qualified, which isn't the best thing to do when you get an amazing job offer. So if you guys want some professional advice. Um, he says, yeah. I said, does that bother you? He said, no. I thought, do I ask one more question? I says, okay, why are you doing this? What, how, how did you get past that? And he said, look, you're smart. You know my business. I trust you. You'll figure it out. Uh, I was 39. Um, the, um, I said yes, knowing that I was stepping into a space that uh, was pretty spooky. Um, I, the first six months on that job, um, it was a bit of a uh, step of faith. I did a lot of praying. Uh, I didn't know a lot about making stuff. I hadn't been to most of these countries around the world. 
Um, the first six months, I, I tried my best. I brought all my problem-solving consulting capabilities. And for those of you that have uh, jobs and have worked with consultants, they pretty much don't have a clue what it means to really do work. Um, they're pretty good at giving advice. I had a 50-year-old COO, Irish gal working for me, and she came into my office one day, and she sat down, and she said, Jerry, she still had that Irish accent. I can't fake it, so I won't try. She says, you do realize you're failing. It's always nice when one of your employees comes to you and tells you you're failing. I says, oh, <laughs> can we talk about that? <laughs> so we talked about it, and, uh, and she was right. And so I stepped back and rebooted, and we went at it again. That five years um, was an amazing growth period for me as an individual, but also spiritually. Let me connect those dots for you. The um, visited 50 countries in that five-year period of time. We tripled the size of the business, uh, repositioned it. I uh, became this phenomenal student of, of leadership and of our business. I had to build a team around me that knew what to do and rely on that team. Uh, I was forced into probably a little more of an enlightened leadership position because I just didn't know anything. Um, on a spiritual basis, the, uh, there were lots, it was lots of praying, and it was from a position of insecurity. But I also found that as I traveled the world, and I spent time in third world countries in South Africa, Asia, uh, India, uh, you name it, Europe. They're not third world countries in Europe, but mostly. Um, Russia's close. The... Uh, um, and I began to be engaged and challenged on what, who am I and what do I believe? And to my surprise, people actually talk about what they believe much more openly outside of the United States than they do in the United States. And I have a discreet memory in my mind sitting in a hotel by the pyramids um, in uh, Egypt. And I was at the table with um, a Jewish company um, and an amazing man from Israel um, his number two, who was an Arab Christian, you want to talk about a minority in a tough spot, um, with a bunch of industrialists that we were doing work with in Egypt um, that were very much um, in that Middle East, Egypt kind of my Muslim mindset. Uh, there was one woman present, and we were talking about uh, the Middle East conflict, religion's impact on that, and kind of the business realities of operating in that environment. Um, if you're going to be in that space, you got to know what you believe. And so the idea of theology for me for the first time in my life became very real. I became a vicious student on what do I believe? What are these other religions? What do they believe? Can I be articulate about what I believe and why I believe it? Uh, I had dinner in a home in Sri Lanka um, with one of our top vendors there. I was the number one exporter out of that country in his home, which was a real uh, honor. And his wife, uh, he was Muslim, and we were good friends. Um, his wife, uh, who I had not met, we were at dinner uh, early in the conversation. She looks at me and she says, why do Americans hate Muslims? Great dinner conversation, right? The, uh, uh, so I, I really um, grew my muscles about what do I believe. And it occurred to me that... For the first time in my life, I had to, as a Christian, and I've been a Christian for some time at this point, I had to become more articulate about what did I really believe and why did I believe it. Ironically, um, for me, as I have gotten older, the more I have learned, the more I've gotten exposure to, the more I am aware that I don't have the answers. And I see that people tend to go one of two directions. 
They either decide they know everything and they're very willing to tell everybody the right answer or they realize um, that they, they know less and less uh, and they're better at listening and asking questions and I fall into the second bucket. I've also become much less judgmental and much more curious. Um, I went from that mass experience there for five years, transformative experience, loved the relationships that I had. Um, Wexner came back. We met twice a year and talked about the business. So I was running pretty independently. And in one of those meetings, he says, I've decided that I need you to do something else. He says, I want you and um, a lady, that, a woman that was running Victoria's Secret Direct, I want you to co-lead Victoria's Secret. And then he left. And I'm like, wait a minute. Do I, do I get to say yes or no? Or, you know, it was, uh, so then I went home and I had the little theological debate about can a Christian lead Victoria's Secret? And I'm not asking your opinions because it's a really tough subject. Um, and, uh, but I struggled with it a little bit. Um, it, uh, the work of the work was pretty amazing, some amazing people in it. Um, I did that for about a year and a half, and I remember one of the highlights for me. We were pretty involved in our church, and I had lunch with the pastor at that time uh, on a pretty regular basis. I remember him coming to my place of work because I was busy and tied up, and, and I didn't even think about it. And he came up. He came in the front door, went through the hallways, up the stairs. And as you might imagine, we have a number of very large posters. Probably there's not anything in here big enough that would show the size of the posters we have. Take that screen and multiply it times about four. Uh, we had a bunch of them, and uh, I had uh, pretty much gotten used to and pretty much was unaware of them. When he got to my office and shut the door, I said, hey, let's go down to the cafeteria and grab a bite. He says, can we just sit here for a minute? I need to recover. <laughs> and, you know, and he was kind of sweating. He was a little bit out of breath. And um, so the, uh, all kinds of trials along the way. Um, did that for a short period of time, and after a total of 10 years working at the Limited, um, I left and became the president of Coach in New York City for six years. And then uh, my last step was really to be here where um, I had the chance to marry my, my vocation with my passion and join in, and step into the leadership role at REI. I share this journey um, because I became convinced along the way. And one of the, one of the jobs that you do as a leader of a company is you spend a lot of time thinking about talent and people. Not only are the people that report to you today, where are they and what can they do? And will they get us as a team to next? But as you interview people and bring them into the organization, what are they going to be able to do? What are they going to be able to step up to? And I became convict, convinced that the people that are very unclear about what are they becoming and what, are they, what do they aspire to become are infinitely more effective and more likely to accomplish that and actually make a step forward and drive an organization forward. The other thing I learned is that um, on this journey, and it was um, just one of the surprising insights to me, my early days with the Bible was really looking almost as a historical document and reading these stories um, and trying to understand what did that mean? You know, what did this thing that happened so many, so long ago really mean to my life today? Um, and what I came to believe is that one of the most central themes of the Bible is this idea of what are you becoming? And if you read it with that light, um, it speaks uh, every single uh, passage to you. And I'll, I'll spend more time on that uh, in a bit. The, uh, I think there's three steps to addressing this question of becoming. 
For me, becoming means moving from where you are to where you aspire to be. I think, number one, you have to be deliberate. You have to dream big or aim high, have courage and have faith. Those are your three steps. All three are critical on a life journey. I actually believe that most people never ask the question or take that first step about being deliberate. Who do, where are you going? Who are you becoming? Um, and because they don't start, the likelihood that they change their trajectory is almost zero. Um, who are you becoming? Who do you aspire to be? When they do do that, I found that they often did not reach far enough. Uh, the reaching, you know, setting those big goals. One, um, we need it. Uh, and two, um, it's only in stretching yourself that you discover what you can do. But I, at the end of the day, I found that the third item, this idea of having courage um, and the faith is the, is the real, uh, it's where the action is. In life, having courage is celebrated. Uh, if you read a leader, there's the, one of my favorite writers, uh, a guy named Warren Bennis, writes about crucibles in your life. Those moments that you come under fire where you have a crisis, a point of failure, a challenge that seems insurmountable, and how do you cope with that? Those crucible offense, events define what kind of a person you become and what kind of a leader you become. He's done a number of studies that really kind of dig into that idea. In Christianity, I actually believe on the idea of being deliberate, um, I think a lot of people do become deliberate about, do you believe in Christ? But I think a lot of people do it in a way that they don't ever confront the total implications. So they, you know, they have a fuzzy idea about, do I believe or not? But they don't confront the idea of what does discipline mean? One of the hard things about Christianity um, is that there's not a minimal acceptable standard, a medium, and a high. There's just a standard. And if you read it and you study it, it's a little daunting uh, you know, words like holy and righteousness. The, uh, so I think that while in the Christian faith, uh, there are a lot of people that commit the standard is almost by definition, a high standard. Um, I do get to the point that the action is in, um, they have courage or faith and what happens when you trip and when you stumble. And ironically, um, in life, you have to go through those steps in sequence. You got to be deliberate, you have to dream big, and you have to have courage. In Christian faith, sometimes it starts backwards. You may stumble, and it causes you to think about, do I need Christ? Uh, it may lead you in the other direction. At the same time, while that event or that crisis may lead you to Christ, if you're already a Christian, that failure, uh, that brush with sin, that challenge may lead you away from Christ. It's where the action is. The, uh, I want to spend a minute talking about um, why I think the Bible is this amazing uh, set of directions about who you're becoming. The, uh, and I'm going to do this in kind of a, a clip through pretty fast and just to, to make a number of points. I'm going to start with Matthew 4, 18 through 20. It's about the calling of disciples. Uh, Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee, sees two brothers, Simon, later called Peter and Andrew. They're fishing, throwing their nets in the lake, which was their regular work. Jesus said to them, come with me, and I'll make you a new kind of fisherman. I'll show you how to catch men and women instead of perch and bass. They didn't ask questions. They simply dropped their nets and followed. 
this idea of, of a decision point, being confronted and making a decision point is very clear in that story. I'm struck by almost the exact same set of facts in the rich Uller story that you find in Mark chapter 10, um, verses 17 through 21. He went out in the street and a man came running up, greeting him with great reverence. And he asked, good teacher, what must I do to get an eternal life? Jesus said, why are you calling me good? No one is good, only God. You know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, honor your father and mother. He says, teacher, I have. From my youth, all of them. Jesus looked him in the eye and he loved him. And he said, there's one thing left. Go sell whatever you own and give it to the poor. All your wealth will then be heavenly wealth and come follow me. Come follow me. The man's face clouded over. The last thing he expected to hear, and he walked off with a heavy heart. A moment of making a choice, and he was not able to move forward. The next story, the one that I, I um, uh, find touching, is the uh, woman in adultery uh, brought to Jesus. And just to set the stage, a woman was caught in adultery, the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus in a conundrum, a popularity conundrum. He was in the temple teaching. Uh, they brought this woman to Jesus and suggested that the law required should be stoned to death, knowing that if he enforced the law, it would be unpopular. And Jesus said, straightening up, let the sinless one among you go first. Throw the stone. Bending down again, he wrote in some more dirt. Hearing that, they walked away, one after another, beginning with the oldest, the woman was left alone, and Jesus stood up and he spoke to her. Woman, where are they? Does no one condemn you? No one, Master. Neither do I, said Jesus. Go on your own way, and from now on, don't sin. For me, this is a startling story about this idea of courage and faith. There's a failure. There's this crisis in the, in the temple. So a blatant challenge, a blatant sin. One of the big ten and the Ten Commandments drugged to the temple in front of everybody, in front of Jesus. And what happens in that confrontation? He says, does no one condemn you? No one, neither do I. Go on your way, and from now on, don't sin. So when you think about your struggles, put yourself in that environment, what would he and Jesus have to say to you? This idea of becoming, I think, is phenomenally powerful. Another example is the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, she's there in the middle of the day, probably to avoid crowds, meets Jesus. The disciples have gone into town. They engage in a conversation. Um, they get to this awkward place where he says, go call your husband, then come back. She says, I have no husband. Nicely put, I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. They continue talking. He goes on to say, it's who you are, the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father's on the lookout for, those who are simply and honestly in themselves before him with their worship. This idea, as they read the Bible, this idea about what it means to become, in spite of our circumstances of where we are in the journey, I think is phenomenally powerful. We spent a significant amount of time, Peter took us on a study through Romans, which to me the entire book is on this idea of becoming. And I really love uh, verse 12, uh, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday life, your ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place before God as an offering. 
And then the scripture that was read uh, this, as we started in James, um, this idea of, of confronting trials and overcoming it. Uh, consider sheer gift, friends. When tests, challenges come on you from all sides, know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. Don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you become, so you become mature, well-developed, not deficient in any way. I want to close today with the uh, short version of what I've said here today. Who are you becoming? I would encourage you to answer the question for yourself. Be bold. Look to the Bible for direction, for courage and faith to take the journey. Um, And I think this idea of becoming is transformative. And I would ask that all of you just think about it and embrace it. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I give thanks for the opportunity to gather here today. Um, Lord, for your word, um, the wisdom that's, in, that's there for us as we do life and as we look to the future and seek out uh, what it is that we are to become. Lord, I pray your blessing on all those that are here that as we take this journey, uh, you'd be at our side and provide us guidance. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.